0: Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed: Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. A little more than a year now has passed since the historic presidential election of 2020. Now seems a good time to assess the state of American politics after this eventful year that saw the replacement of President Donald Trump with President Joe Biden, the unprecedented attempt of the defeated presidential candidate to overturn the election results, an invasion of the U.S. Capitol building by his supporters, the continued ravages of the country brought on by the COVID pandemic, continued partisan polarization over everything from vaccinations and mask mandates to public school curricula. And efforts by the new administration to enact new federal initiatives to address infrastructure needs, economic inequality, and climate change. To assess all of this, these events, and, and more, I've invited back to Beyond Your News Feed our duo of American politics experts, Professor Adam Myers and Professor Matt Gordino. To longtime listeners, our guests need no introduction. For new listeners, let me just say that Professor Guardino is the Providence College political science department's expert on public opinion and the media, and Professor Myers is our specialist in political parties and state politics. Beyond their individual specialties, both have broad interests in American politics in general, history, and American institutions, and they bring this all to bear on their insightful analysis of our politics today. So Matt and Adam, welcome again to Beyond Your Newsfeed.
1: Thanks, Bill. I'm glad to be here. Always good to be on, Bill.
0: So uh, let's let's start with some recent, uh, well, relatively recent um, developments. We're now a couple of weeks away from the so-called off-year elections, in which there were some elections in various states. Uh, the most talked about have been the gubernatorial races in Virginia and New Jersey, uh, where. In Virginia, uh, uh, the Republican candidate uh, brought off a surprise victory in a state that had voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden last year. And in New Jersey, where the Democratic candidate barely squeaked out a reelection. So uh, what can we make of these two races? What's your analysis of what was going on in Virginia and New Jersey? And are there any national implications?
2: So uh, I think you're exactly right, Bill. The uh, the elections in Virginia and New Jersey were certainly a triumph for Republicans as well as a learning sign for Democrats. Uh, so Virginia has become a state that's fairly, if not solidly, Democratic. So the fact that Republican Glenn Youngkin won the governor's race there was certainly noteworthy. And New Jersey is, of course, a staunchly Democratic state. So the fact that the Republican candidate for governor there, Jack, chitarelli i think i'm saying the the name right um nearly defeated the incumbent democratic governor um, is also very noteworthy i think if you look at the aggregate election results as well as the exit polls what you find is that there was a shift toward the gop across the board in these races among nearly all geographies and among nearly all demographic groups having said that The largest pro-Republican swing appears to have occurred among upscale suburban voters. So, for example, in Virginia, the places where Youngkin gained the most in comparison to Trump's performance in 2020 uh, were counties like Loudoun County, which is a high-income suburban county outside Washington, D.C. And I think this is significant because, as we've talked about on this podcast, actually talked about it around this time last year after the presidential election, President Biden's victory last year was largely made possible by changing voting patterns in wealthy suburbs. In other words, President Biden did not improve over Hillary Clinton's performance in 2016 among white working class voters, which is a group that has received a lot of attention from the media and a group that we've talked about on this podcast repeatedly. He also did worse than Hillary Clinton, substantially worse among Latino voters and even black voters, right? the group that really won President Biden the election last year were these upscale suburban voters that were so repulsed by President Trump. And it does seem like to some extent, with Trump gone as a motivating factor for them, at least for now, uh, upscale suburban and professional voters are returning to the GOP fold in the Biden era. Now, it is important to emphasize that the shift toward the Democrats among this group is a long-term phenomenon that goes back to the 2008 elections with Obama and even before that. So it long preceded Trump. And certainly these election results don't indicate a return to pre-Obama-era voting patterns among this group. But still, given the fact that this is the group that won Democrats the presidency in 2020 and that won them control of the House in the 2018 midterms, the fact that they are now moving in the opposite direction should be very concerning for Democrats.
0: So you're actually pointing the finger at a fundamental here that these are voters that may have deviated from their sort of partisan home somewhat uh, in the last election because of uh, uh, adverse uh, view of President Trump uh, rather than some of the issues that have been talked about in the media. Uh, Matt, what's your assessment of the, of what happened in Virginia? So,
1: I don't really disagree with anything in particular that adam said in terms of you know some of the fundamental factors that were driving that result um i would add a little bit of caution about the potential national implications we have to remember that gubernatorial elections are not presidential elections and they're not even off-year uh congressional elections and the the composition of the electorate is different in particular and so I wasn't all that surprised by Virginia, um, or maybe not as surprised as many people were about the result there, only because, you know, uh, the race in the political environment that, and and especially in a presidential race that uh, the Democrats were facing in 2020 was way different than what they're facing um, this year uh, in the gubernatorial race. And, you know, there may have been you know, message and strategy does still matter, right, along with these fundamentals and demographics. And there may have been a bit of Democratic complacency, Democratic Party complacency about really how safely, quote unquote, a state like Virginia is democratic. Um, It's certainly trending democratic and presidential elections. But again, that's a very different kind of dynamic than these gubernatorial elections. And so um, it's an ominous sign, but I think there are more ominous signs uh, for the Democrats um, that we'll probably talk about later.
0: So to focus on the Virginia race, the, the press has made a lot of some of the things that went on during the campaign. Actually, there's two major arguments that I've read about uh, from the political pundits in the press. Uh, one argument that says that Youngkin's victory was in part because of the lack of Democratic enthusiasm, that somehow uh, Democrats perhaps disenchanted by the sort of tortured road that Biden's legislative agenda is following in Washington, uh, or unhappy with uh, the failure for the Biden administration to, to act on major priorities on, say, the environment or on voting rights, that Democrats just were not enthusiastic and stayed home and really didn't support the Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe. Of course, the other big narrative in the in the press has been this narrative that somehow uh, this kerfuffle over critical race theory that Youngkin obviously tried to exploit during the campaign, where he said that the Democrats are trying to impose some kind of ideology in the public schools. And McAuliffe made this great gaffe at a debate where he said that parents shouldn't have anything to do with the education of their children. Uh, so, that uh, is, has been set up as a major reason why uh, McAuliffe lost and Youngkin won. Uh, what do you think about both of those narratives? Uh, is there anything to them? Uh, neither, of, neither of you mentioned that, those uh, in your analyses. So I have problems
2: with both of those narratives. Uh, with regards to the explanation focusing on a kind of decline in democratic enthusiasm, It turns out that if you look at turnout rates across the municipalities in Virginia, uh, turnout in the most strongly Democratic parts of Virginia, uh, the suburbs right around DC, inner city Richmond and so forth, was actually quite good. It matched uh, Democratic turnout in uh, 2017 when the Democratic candidate for governor won. The issue was that turnout in other parts of Virginia, in very Republican parts of Virginia, Uh, like the western part of the state, skyrocketed. And so I think the issue wasn't so much lack of democratic enthusiasm as it was tremendous enthusiasm among Republicans. So that's one point. Uh, With regards to this whole kind of interpretation focusing on critical race theory and and these sorts of cultural issues, I think there is something there. Uh, However, I think it it is what's far more important than those sorts of issues is just the national context, right? Uh, we know that historically, uh, the, candidate, the candidate of the party that is not in power in the White House uh, wins in the off-year gubernatorial elections in Virginia. Um, this is sometimes uh, linked to this theory in political science that's called the thermostatic voting model, right? When uh, the temperature turns a certain way in Washington, D.C., in this case, in a you know progressive direction. Voters want to turn it back the other way in local races like Virginia. Um, and the fact that uh, I think the national mood in general has soured on Democrats because President Biden's approval rating is so low, I think is the biggest overarching factor uh, that influenced the governor's race in Virginia. Um, it's very important to bear in mind the national dynamics here. This is a governor's race, but what we know about American politics today is that to some extent, all politics is national.
1: So the national context does matter in that way, but it's important to realize that. So, so I would just on the turnout issue, right? I don't question any of the the data that Adam is talking about, but you know, Democrats win races, and not not always, right? But Democrats win races with larger turnouts and with. Uh, turnouts that are more representative of the adult population demographically and that's not happening typically in these you know non-presidential races in particular these state statewide races and so democrats need a bigger turnout boost than they're able to get so even if their turnout was close to 2017 in these places in order to be really competitive and win in an environment like this with all of the headwinds that adam is talking about they need big, big mobilization, and that is in part due to factors beyond their control, but also in part due to factors within their control, like strategy, like uh, like messaging, like, uh, and like, you know, basically getting their policy agenda together in Washington, as Bill was mentioning.
2: I guess I would disagree with that slightly, uh, because turnout in this race, as I hinted at earlier, was actually very, very high. Uh, by historical standards for Virginia governor's races and New Jersey governor's races. Again, these races always occur in odd years, right? Not in presidential elections or in midterm elections. Historically, turnout in the Virginia governor's race is below 50% of eligible voters. Um, This year, it was above 50%, essentially for the first time ever. Uh, So I think that this is in keeping with a trend that we've been seeing in the past few years, which is that turnout, across all elections in the u.s is rising because i think in general political engagement is rising but what we're discovering is that higher turnout does not necessarily lead to democratic victories my view is that this is a fallacy that democrats have been operating off of for years this this idea that higher turnout necessarily helps democrats i think what we're finding is that a lot of these non-voters these habitual non-voters out there in american politics will not necessarily vote for Democrats once they're politically activated.
0: I see some disagreement on the part of Professor Guardino. We better let him get his, his two cents worth in.
1: Yeah, I don't want to belabor the point, but I just want to clarify that I'm not suggesting that higher turnout uh, in, in general always helps Democrats or, or that really the higher turnout is the most important thing. What matters is are Democrats turning out likely voters Right, folks who were non voters or not habitual voters, but who, if they were politically activated, were likely to side with the Democrats. And they have not done a very good job of that for, for decades, in fact, but in and they need it given the political headwinds they're facing, in a state like Virginia and a race like the Gubernatorial race, they need to do more of that to counteract, right, some of these other factors.
0: I'd like us to get into the implications of these races for the midterm elections next year. But but before we do that, uh, let's talk about some other factors that very are very likely to be relevant uh, in the midterm elections, and that has to do with uh, the Biden administration's policy agenda and th- his his uh, success in enacting uh, some of the things he promised. And that agenda right now uh, his, his, uh, his, his 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 seems to be uh, sort of stalled. Uh, some successes, success in passing. The infrastructure bill, uh, success earlier in this year in passing the COVID relief uh, legislation, uh, which was very significant, but his build back better the the social infrastructure bill seems to be stalled, maybe dying in fact, uh, and other initiatives like progress in voting rights uh, have have gotten nowhere or criminal justice reform. Uh, so, how do we to assess? Uh, President Biden's, uh, and let's start with domestic legislative uh, successes and failures at, at this point. So
1: I'm going to start with that just because this has been one of the most, in, in many ways, not surprising developments of the Biden presidency, but also one of the most sort of frustrating to watch as someone who studies public opinion and also American institutions. And so one thing we need to understand right off the bat fundamentally is that, you know, polls show that most elements um of basic elements of the biden economic policy and social welfare policy agenda are actually very popular across the board i don't mean in all demographic groups but popular in terms their majoritarian policies and polls have shown similar results for many decades on that Um, one of the big problems however one of the problems is that is that our institutions are not built to really translate, right, those preferences easily into public policy, even when the party that sort of is the champion, quote unquote, of those things, has control, right, of all the branches. And so the Senate is a big issue here. And, you know, a countermajor or, or, or a political system with significant countermajoritarian elements to it, such as the Senate, is always gonna be a political system that's gonna be a, a difficult system to navigate for, you know, a party that is trying to pass this kind of agenda. And so some of that is just institutional issues and that are not easy to fix right away for the Democrats, but that's really gotten the way of, you know, particularly the social welfare and the climate change, um, elements. Um, and, uh, you know, we, how to, how to kind of get around that, that that's a difficult, a difficult thing.
2: So I I would agree with m- what Matt just said. Clearly, uh, Democrats are are uh, having a hard time right now in passing their very expansive agenda because of all of these institutional barriers that are fundamentally a part of American government. And I think Matt is right that the Senate, and, and I think he's hinting at the fact that the Senate is unrepresentative of the entire country because Every state gets two senators, regardless of population. I think Matt is right that the Senate is a, a big problem for Democrats, certainly in the long term. That said, um, I do want to emphasize that right now Democrats enjoy razor thin majorities, not just in the Senate, but in the House as well. Um, they only have a five seat majority in the House, which is you know incredibly narrow. I think the narrowest house majority since the 19th century, if I'm not mistaken and for reasons that maybe we'll get to discuss later my view actually is that it's more likely that republicans will take control of the house next year than it is that they'll take control of the senate um so i think that uh you know it's very important to bear in mind that in spite of these um institutional barriers the the country is nearly evenly divided right now and that is reflected in what we're in in partisan divisions in congress and so The basic problem the Democrats face is that they have such narrow majorities, right? If they didn't have these narrow majorities, they could get a lot of these things passed much more easily. Um, The infrastructure bill they were able to pass because they got Republican support. Um, The Build Back Better plan enjoys no Republican support. And so Democrats, given these narrow majorities that they have, have to be completely unified to pass it.
0: Yes, and I'm, I'm intrigued again by the media narratives around this. Uh, there's a lot of uh, focus on uh, Senator Kristen Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin, is, is, uh, at least from a, the progressive perspective, as kind of the evil pre- presences that are refusing to support the democratic agenda. But, Adam, I think you're right. Uh, it, it's not the personalities of these people so much as the fact that the majorities are just so narrow. If it weren't Manchin or Sinema, it could be someone else.
2: That's right. The only reason we care so much about Manchin and cinema is because Democrats have exactly 50 senators, right? They have no room to spare in terms of getting something passed through the Senate. And quite frankly, they barely have any room to spare in getting something passed through the House as well.
0: Right. And uh, the social infrastructure bill, this Build Back Better plan, is supposed to be passed under the... So-called recon- reconciliation rules, which allows uh, the Democrats to avoid facing a filibuster, sort of these arcane budgetary rules that the Senate uses, and but to pass even on reconciliation, they need the votes of all fifty Democratic senators.
1: I just want to jump in on this, and 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 absolutely, it's not about the personalities of people like Manchin and Cinema, and and the media is misplaced there as it often is, but you know. The, the razor thin ma- majority is in part a function of the structure of the Senate, that a, a party that is the uh, the more sort of left leaning party and the one on uh, economic issues and the one that appeals to, uh, you know, sort of class interests is going to have more difficulty getting large majorities in an institution like that. So it's an uphill climb no matter what for Democrats. And so the focus of progressives on people like Cinema S- and Manchin is not really about their personalities. It's about them, you know, essentially standing as anti-democratic roadblocks to a broadly popular agenda. Um, and I think that there are things that can be done to try to counteract that, but it's a really difficult problem.
0: And what about some of the other initiatives, And in particular, the, the attempts to reform voting rights? Uh, Democrats are obviously concerned by the uh, movement in the states to Pass new voting restrictions. Uh, there's a multitude of Republican-controlled states that have done that, and the Democrats have crafted uh, actually several bills that are aimed at rectifying that or preventing that kind of uh, preventing voter suppression. Uh, but but those bills are blocked. In um, any chance that those might pass,
2: I think there's a, a very very small chance of that. And and here. I I think the issue is actually more squarely with the Senate, uh, far more than with the Build Back Better package. Because as you pointed out, Bill, the Build Back Better plan can pass via a simple majority vote in the Senate through the reconciliation process. Uh, the, The various voting rights proposals that are out there in Congress right now do not qualify for going through reconciliation. So they have to overcome the filibuster right this requirement that in order to uh, get a final passage vote in the u.s senate um, two-thirds of senators have to agree and um, the issue there is that even though joe manchin has signaled that he's open to large-scale voting rights reforms he doesn't want to abandon the filibuster and it seems unlikely to me that he's going to change his mind um, and so my sense is there's a much is that there's a much better chance that, that the Build Back Better plan will pass in some form, than that any kind of voting rights legislation will pass through Congress.
0: So Adam, you see no chance of Manchin setting aside his opposition to reforming the filibuster, even though he's the author of one of these voting rights plans, right? He 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 put together his own plan because he he objected to the original plan being. Uh, Presented by the leadership. He put together his own plan. Uh, The Senate voted on that. Presumably, Manchin was going to convince some Republicans to support it, but none did. So, you don't think, even on that plan that he's actually embraced and authored, he wouldn't consider perhaps a partial reform that would say, uh, eliminate the filibuster on issues relating to voting.
2: I cannot read Joe Manchin's mind. I can only go based off of the statements that I've seen him make. And it seems like he's been very adamant and unequivocal about uh, refusing to entertain eliminating the filibuster. So I suspect he won't deviate from that. Um, But this issue of the filibuster, I want to really emphasize to our listeners, this is not a fundamental structural issue with the U.S. Constitution. This is a simple rule that the U.S. Senate made in the 19th century that has persisted until today. And it would just require a majority of U.S. senators to change that rule. So the Senate is a problem here, uh, not from a structural perspective, um, but from the reality that unfortunately, there's not a majority of U.S. senators right now who have come around to the view that the filibuster is a fundamentally anti-democratic mechanism and should be done away
1: with. The filibuster is just really one of the most confounding elements of this whole story to me because Adam's absolutely right and I'm glad that he made clear this is really this is not about structure of the Senate it's not even about it's not about the law it's really just about a simple rule and it's a little bit um, you know somebody like Joe Manchin being this uh, adamant against reforming it is 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 just a very strange situation given how you know, a lot of the arguments that people like him are making are that look that this would be seen as a as a as sort of You know adding to the partisan warfare, right? This kind of narrative this fixation on bipartisanship I'll put that in air quotes, which is really just a perception issue frankly these days You know with something like the filibuster the republican party has broken norm democratic norm after democratic norm for several years now and and, and just norms of our political culture. Right. And so to w- with with sort of um, the voting system, you know, deteriorating right in the way that it is in the States for somebody who is a Democrat like Joe Manchin to say, I don't want to you know, I won't go anywhere right near reforming the filibuster, uh, which is a is is in many ways. Even eliminating the filibuster would be much uh, a much smaller change to our political culture than some of the things that the, that the Republicans have done. It's just very strange and and frankly disconcerting.
0: Yeah, and much of the commentary around the filibuster ignores the fact that the filibuster has been reformed numerous times uh, over over the last century and a half, uh, and also that uh, the way the filibuster operates uh, at present, where where in order to pass virtually any legislation in the Senate, you need to have uh, have sixty votes to cloture to stop the filibuster. That's really an innovation. Uh, so it's really kind of ironic that that someone like Manchin says I'm going to defend the filibuster in the in the name of tradition, when in fact the use of the filibuster the way it's been used is really only a decade or maybe two decades old. Uh, if you go back thirty or forty years. Uh, Rarely was legislation filibustered. Uh, usually the Senate passed legislation on majority votes. Some of the most important legislation in our history, like the enactment of Medicare, for example, was enacted with a pure majority vote. There was no filibuster. Uh, but it's only been in the last couple of decades, and this is probably, I don't know if you both of you would agree, I think it's a reflection of the... Uh, Uh, partisan polarization, but also the close divide between the parties uh, in the Congress that have turned the filibuster into the kind of weapon it's become, where now every piece of legislation has to overcome a filibuster. But I think listeners and Americans in general need to understand that that's really an innovation. Uh, The Senate never operated that way in the past. Uh, Only rarely were pieces of legislation filibustered. Uh, So... Uh, to reform the filibuster to uh to alter it in some way uh wouldn 't be some kind of break with tradition as it 's often portrayed in my view
2: yeah I think that's that 's exactly right. I think the increased use of the filibuster is very much you know a reflection of the kind of the trench warfare form of politics that we that we see in America today and i agree with matt that that these kind of notions that folks like mansion and cinema have that 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 we can return to the good old days of the us senate where you know there was a lot of cross partisan collaboration and so forth um i think those ideas are a complete mirage that's that's just not the the nature of american politics today i don't see um, the kinds of major structural and also kind of cultural changes that would be necessary to return the Senate to that status. I think, um, you know, folks like Manchin and Sinema need to accept that the U.S. is is sort of gradually moving toward a kind of a more parliamentary democracy style of politics where, you know, the parties um, are unified and polarized and need to be given the space to enact their agenda and um eliminating the filibuster or at least reforming it dramatically is is crucial to getting us there.
0: Yeah and and I think the research by Francis Lee and other political scientists to point out the the way that congressional politics is governed by the fact that parties never have large majorities after an election that there's that there's that the that the control of both the house and the senate is always up for grabs. It's competitive in the current era, which wasn't true in, through most of American history. Uh, up until the 1990s, for example, between the 1930s and the 1990s, the Democrats had overwhelming majorities most of the time in both the Senate and the House. So the Republicans had little prospect of gaining control of those institutions. And that might exp- explain why they didn't filibuster things. Uh, there was no real point to to stand in the way of, of legislation that the Democrats are going to pass anyway. Um, but now we've got this close division and that's really kind of the source of our problems and and it's a legislative dis- division that's also rooted in uh, divisions within the public.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I, you know uh, I think in her book, uh, Lee shows very clearly how you know polarization has risen in tandem with with the increased narrowness of the party divide in Congress, and you see that at the state level as well. States that are more closely divided also feature mo- more polarized legislatures. This this seems to be just kind of a a fundamental pattern in American government.
0: Okay, so so we've got this institutional gridlock, and we've talked about the various factors that define that, but Americans often Blame the president for gridlock. And am I wrong? But it seems that Biden is suffering uh, in his approval ratings, which have declined dramatically in the last few months, uh, from this sort of deadlock in Congress and that the American people are. Uh, and there's some evidence that Democrats in particular have shift. Some Democrats have shifted towards a more disapproving view of Biden. Am I right? I would
1: agree with that. And I would even add to it. I mean, I would, I would start off by saying I'm not letting the Biden administration off the hook here. I mean, they've made many policy mistakes in, in my mind, as well as messaging mistakes in the last year or, or several months that, you know, could have mitigated perhaps some of this decline. But fundamentally, the things causing it are really not in Biden's control. One is the institutional gridlock Um One is the state of the economy um, and the very strange economic situation we find ourselves in, which has virtually nothing to do with Biden or the or the policies that the administration has and has implemented or is pushing. Um, uh, Another has to do with the fact that, you know, with increasing polarization, uh, the, the polarization and approval ratings of the president has just gone up year after year after year. I was showing some data to my students in class the other day, just how you know approval ratings in the first few months of the Biden administration are more polarized than even in the first few mo- months of the Trump administration. And so, what that means for Biden now is that fewer and fewer voters, uh, you know, are, are 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 movable on his approval, and there are some, right? But less room for him to to grow and to even to mitigate, right, some of these some of these losses.
0: Yeah, and the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan obviously was a factor.
2: Right. That That's what I wanted to add to what Matt said. I, I generally agree with what he said, but I would emphasize that what really triggered uh, the drop in Biden's approval ratings uh, was the withdrawal in Afghanistan. If, if you look at the data, it started in mid-August right around then. Um, and the perception, of course, was that the withdrawal was uh, chaotic and botched. And you know that that's a uh, policy discussion, whether or not the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a good idea or not, whether it was executed well. Uh, but that is certainly what triggered or precipitated the drop in his polls. However, since then, um, his poll numbers have continued to drop. And I think Matt is right. Um, a lot of this has to do with these economic factors such as inflation, which are largely beyond Biden's control. Um, and... I think the drop also has to do with the, the gridlock and dysfunction in Washington, D.C., which is also uh, largely beyond Biden's control. Uh, so uh, it's a complicated array of factors that are leading to Biden's, uh, the decline in Biden's approval ratings. A lot of it is stuff he can't do anything about. But the fact of the matter is, um, his approval, no president besides Trump has had approval ratings this consistently low at this stage of his presidency. And so I think that that's a very ominous sign for Biden and for Democrats, because, of course, uh, their electoral fortunes next year are very tied to what Americans think of him.
0: Well, let's move on to next year's election, since you brought it up, Adam. Uh, uh, Certainly, Biden's approval rating uh, is a negative factor for the Democrats. So what's the shape of the election, as it appears from this sort of long vantage point. We're now a year out from the midterm elections. Uh, what, What can we expect, do you think? What factors are going to affect whether or not the Republicans regain control of the House or the Senate?
2: Well, the first thing to say is that obviously a lot can change between now and next November, right? And so you know, I wouldn't want to make any predictions at this point. Uh, But based on where we are right now, based on how things are looking right now, I think it's quite likely that Republicans will take control of both houses of Congress next year. Uh, I think it's more likely, actually, that they'll take control of the House than of the Senate for reasons that we can get into. Uh, The simple reality is this. As I've already mentioned, Democrats enjoy razor-thin majorities in both the house and senate right the senate is split evenly 50 50 with senator or uh, with vice president harris casting the tie-breaking vote um thereby giving uh the senate the democrats control in that chamber and uh democrats enjoy just a five seat majority in the house which is as i said already the narrowest majority in decades even centuries As our listeners know, most likely, midterm elections are almost always bad for the party that holds the presidency. Uh, So just based on historical patterns, I would expect Republicans to pick up seats in both the House and Senate, and they don't need to pick up very many uh, to gain control of both chambers. Um, On top of that, I think the results in Virginia and New Jersey, coupled with Biden's low approval rating, suggests that the political environment next year could be even worse for Democrats than they are on average for the party in power during the midterms. On top of that, uh, this year is a redistricting year. And without getting into the nitty gritty just yet, it looks like Republicans are going to gain enough seats through gerrymandering alone uh, to gain them the House majority. So you put all of these factors together and it seems to me that the table is set for a republican congress in 2023
1: i would generally agree with that and but i would also i would maybe put a little caution on the senate just because um even though that's a very very close close majority i think that the the republican party is not necessarily in great shape with you know winning the kinds of senate races it needs to win to be able to do that i think that the jury's still out on that a little bit I think that there are problems in the Republican Party still. Um, that even though they're facing a really favorable political environment, I think that how to how to manage a relationship with Trump and the forces that he represents remains an issue. And and especially with so-called more swing voters and some of these uh, suburban voters who might be important in some of the, some of the states, right? But the House seems virtually certain to go over to the Republicans,
0: and the Senate obviously isn't affected by gerrymandering, so. So you have you're going to have people running in statewide races where probably like national issues will determine outcomes.
2: That's right. I mean, so at the moment, the Senate is 50 50, as I said before. And looking at the uh, Senate lands, the Senate race landscape for next year, it looks to me like there is going to be seven competitive seats. Um, Four of them are currently held by Democrats. Three of them are currently held by Republicans. So it really could go either way, but for the national environment factor, right? Given that it's likely that the environment will be pro-Republican, um, I think it's more likely than not that most of those races uh, will be won by Republicans, likely giving Republicans you know, a 52, 53-seat majority. That's sort of the way I see the Senate. A
0: lot of that, that national environment will be be influenced by the state of the economy, which the economy itself seems to be humming along pretty nicely in terms of sales, in terms of lowering unemployment. That trend seems to, with the effects of COVID uh, fading away, one hopes uh, that's gonna help the economy. Uh, The big problem out there now seems to be this inflation factor, and whether inflation is going to be a temporary phenomena or will we see inflation ease. By next year, uh, I would think. I personally think that that the economic environment might be somewhat favorable to the Democrats by next November.
1: It might be, but the the, the thing with the inflation issue is that, and not to make the parallels too closely, but you know the seven, you know the mid the 70s and then into the early 80s, inflation right was one of the big issues that the Republicans were really good strategically at using against the Democrats and really good at sort of capturing quote unquote, middle-class votes. And they're, they're using that strategy now. It's an easy argument to make to blame inflation on things like government spending and the, the social welfare agenda. And if it's still an issue, right, in a year or so close to what it is now, then that is a really, really bad situation. It's a very hard narrative to counter, um, let alone policy-wise, right, something that can uh, be effectively addressed, right, quickly.
0: We should mention that most economists don't see the current inflation as a result of government spending.
2: That's true. But I think it is important to emphasize that, in my view anyway, the Biden administration and Democrats are to some extent responsible for this predicament that they find themselves in regarding inflation. Because throughout the spring and summer, they were telling Americans that this inflation was transitory. Um, that it wasn't likely to last very long. And it seems like they were wrong about that. I think that the durability of inflation has taken uh, Biden's economic experts by surprise. It now appears to be something more than transitory. So they have to go back on what they said earlier. Um, And it's going to be difficult to explain to the American people why they were wrong on
0: that. On the other hand, things could change dramatically. One of the big drivers of the inflation is higher uh, oil prices right now, and we know that oil prices are can be very uh, changeable. And, it, and And by February, it could be that gas prices are going to be gasoline prices going to fall. Uh, I personally believe that one of the ways that one of the main ways that uh, voters perceive inflation is through the price of the gas pump, and if you see falling gasoline prices say, by next March, uh, then things might be very different. But again, there's no way to know. But certainly, if the current economic situation continues, it's probably going to be bad for the Democrats. Let's talk a little bit more about redistricting and also voter suppression. What about efforts to reform redistricting? How have those worked out? In most states, redistricting is done by the legislature, and it's a partisan process. So in Texas, for example, the Republicans control the Texas legislature, and they're going to draw a map that's very favorable to the Republican Party. But there's other states that have so-called independent commissions. Are those more effective in resulting in districts with less partisan bias?
2: Yeah, so this is a huge topic and I could spend an hour talking about it, so I'm going to try to be brief. I think uh, it might be helpful for our listeners to, first of all, just discuss what redistricting is and how it works. So in a very small nutshell, um, every 10 years we have a U.S. Census. We had it last year. The federal government counts um, Americans up all across the country. Um, gets totals for the total populations of every single state and the total populations of every single municipality within the states. Based on those numbers, it apportions house seats to states, right? So larger states get more house seats, smaller states get fewer. And the range of house seats right now uh, ranges from one for very small states like Vermont, Delaware, the Dakotas, and so forth, to 52 for California. Um, after states find out how many seats in the House they get, um, they have to redraw congressional districts to ensure that A, they have the right number of seats, and B, that um, all the districts they they draw have equal populations. And so that's what's going on right now in states across the country. States found out how many House seats they got in the spring. Now they're redrawing the lines. Um, and as you said, Bill, states redraw the lines in different ways. The traditional way to do it is the state legislatures do it. Um, and because state legislatures are partisan bodies, this opens the door for this thing called gerrymandering, right? Drawing house district boundaries uh, with the goal of maximizing partisan advantage. Um, but as you said, uh, there are states like California, Arizona, Uh, Washington, uh, Virginia, Colorado, a few others, that use these independent commissions, which are supposed to be neutral and apolitical. Now, the issue right now uh, for Democrats is that Republicans have control of redistricting in states accounting for 187 House seats, while Democrats have control of redistricting in states accounting for 75 seats. Uh, The reason for that vast difference is because there are a number of Democrat controlled states, most notably California, in which voters have taken the power uh, to redraw the lines away from the state legislature and given it to an independent commission. And so Democrats right now face a real conundrum. They can't gerrymander California because California uses it as an independent commission. But the second and third largest states in the union, Texas and Florida, are controlled by Republicans. And those states don't have independent commissions. And as you said, uh, the Texas Republicans uh, very nicely gerrymandered a congressional uh, district map for Texas already. Uh, Florida Republicans are on their way to doing so. Um, And so Republicans have an advantage in redistricting, largely because a number of Democratic states uh, can't gerrymander. And, And that you know, is an unfortunate reality. It would be wonderful if, ever, if all states And, and also the COVID situation, frankly, in terms um, of the, the, the you know, uh, continued
1: surges and the Delta now, the variant. Tend um, people tend to blame the president, states. right, for so, problems like that. in a certain like sense, you can really, um, say uh, the Democrats have unilaterally disarmed. They're not really Biden's fault, things. frankly. The irony of the situation is rich here because, you know, the, the movement in the Democratic Party among... Oh, in general, but among the base toward these sort of democracy enhancing, you know, policies, for example, the nonpartisan re- redistricting commissions um, and even some of the, you know, the voting rights um, elements is, you know, when it, it is actually harming them politically in certain ways, even though when you look at public opinion, right, a lot of these things are actually fairly popular, especially in, you know, in in certain states, right. And among certain demographics demographics and, and so there's something strange and very kind of, there's a, there's a disconnect there. And, um, you know, the party that seems more willing to, you know, essentially fight, you know, fight um, in, a, in a less than Democratic way, small d, is the one that's advantaged here,
0: and I would say in both situations. Even the efforts by Democrats to expand voting access may not be helping them. Adam pointed out that, recent races, there was an upsurge in Republican participation and the ease of voting. Many people see that as advantaging the Democratic Party. It's not clear that that's the case. Just to add
1: quickly to that, a lot of this is fine-grained and that's at the state and local level and it doesn't get a lot of news coverage, but that's absolutely right, Bill. But what's going on in some states is that you know changes are being made and or proposed that would allow for essentially easier voting in some parts of the state that maybe trend more republican and harder voting in other parts right depending on urban versus rural suburban and so it gets you know the get into the weeds there with it but um you know these processes can be manipulated in those ways
0: right but i've heard neither of you say that these voter suppression efforts will be the major major factor in the midterm
2: right and and i think it's Precisely because of the reason that you already articulated uh, it doesn't appear to me that I understand these 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 voting uh, changes that are occurring in Republican states, have a have tremendous symbolic value and they're important on that level. Um, but the political science research uh, does not indicate that kind of these kinds of voting changes on the margins, for example, uh, limiting the number of days of early voting. Uh, You know, adding certain requirements to mail in ballots and so forth. The political science research does not indicate that they make a great difference in terms of turnout. And um, there is very little empirical evidence that higher turnout benefits either party. So for that reason, from a empirical perspective, in terms of their actual influence on election results, I don't, I think that these changes are not particularly significant, but again, they do have this, this kind of symbolic import and I, and you know, we want to be a country that sort of expands access to the ballot. I think that, you know, that, you know, I think in general, a pro-democracy sort of policy regime is good. And so from that perspective, I think some of these reforms restricting voting are problematic. The bigger potential change down the line, not in 2022, but maybe in 2024, is these uh, changes that are being made in some states um, in terms of who controls election administration, the role of state legislatures and other partisan elected officials in election administration. Those things could be much more influential in terms of election results, particularly in presidential races. And so that's what I'm
0: especially worried about. Right, and that's that's gonna be a problem for 2024.
1: I'm glad that you mentioned that, Adam. I was going to mention that, but let me just make two quick points in response, push back a little bit on what, what you said. They are symbolic and the symbolism is important, um, but they're also more than symbolic and because they will have very little effect in 2022. The presidential race is different though. The electorate is bigger, the electorate is more diverse. And, you know, the the possibility for voter suppression to have a real effect on what, you know, outcomes might be in certain places is much larger in 2024 than in 2022. That's number one. Number two is that it's also more than symbolic because the basis on which many of these laws, policy changes, including the election administration stuff, are being pushed is, uh, to put it mildly, uh, extremely thin from an evidence perspective, and a lot of it is simply lies and um, it's conspiracy theories. And that in and of itself is symbolically right, very harmful democracy, but it's materially harmful because once it becomes accepted that that's um, a, a sort of a legitimate sort of tool of political discourse to use to get policies passed in, at the level that it seems to be moving, and then all kinds of other material problems, right, Um, and anti-democratic policies, right, could come from that. I think this is, you know, this is a very, very, both administration and the voter suppression stuff, very serious issue, much more serious than I think even people, for example, like Joe Manchin might be taking it. Um, So
0: maybe this would allow us to transition a bit into a kind of a longer view of our politics. And I'd like to frame this around both political parties the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and uh, what's going on in those parties uh, and I guess I'll start out by posing a perhaps provocative question uh, has the Republican Party become the party of Trump and has it become an anti-democratic party
1: you know the short answer to those questions is yes and yes but particularly at the elite level Um, You know, not necessarily at the level of the mass public or the voters. Right. But, you know, it's not the party of Trump anymore in the sense that many candidates. Right. For example, Youngkin in Virginia are, you know, on the surface, um, you know, not associating themselves with Trump. And that's actually in some ways maybe been a good political strategy from their perspective. It is the party of Trump in the sense that when you look at the policies that high profile Republican elites are aligning themselves with, they're really not departing at all from Trump policies. In fact, they're in fact embracing them. And, you know, and that's in part a reaction to a voter base, right? That's become very important in the Republican coalition and the sort of success, right? Electorally that Trump was able to have in 2016, mobilizing that base and the belief that that's the last sort of best hope, you know, for Republicans to maintain political control. And I could say more about the anti-democratic tendencies have already hinted at them. But I think that not every Republican elite, f- for sure, but I think that the, the the broad trend of the party is to embrace and to push the envelope on anti-democratic policies and institutions and norm-breaking. And that is, you know, not all about Trump, but it's, Trump certainly has enabled and encouraged it. I,
2: I agree, but I maybe would have a slightly different spin on on both of these questions so with regards to has the republican party become the trump party i think in terms of messaging it clearly has right Um, trump taught republicans that there's tremendous um, gains to be made or tremendous benefits to be had via focus on these kinds of populist culture war issues um and via de-emphasizing kind of the free market libertarian or shall we use the term neoliberal policies of the uh you know of the Paul Ryan years uh in the in during the Obama presidency and i think that's a as, that's a durable shift in in republican messaging and whether or not it's a durable shift in the republican policy agenda we don't know yet i we we will find out if republicans take control of congress next year um in terms of trump's hold on the party as a person as a figure I'm just not sure about that. As as Matt pointed out, there are these Republican elites right now, these these ambitious Republican politicians that are taking small steps toward distancing themselves from Trump. Um again, these steps are small because it because the Republican base is clearly still infatuated with Trump, but it's not clear how long that's going to last. Um and I think a lot of this will become more clear in 2023. Um when Assuming that Republicans take back power in Congress, um, what will their policy agenda be in Congress? What will the Republican leaders in Congress do vis-a-vis the, the presidential race if Trump decides he wants to run again and so forth? I think there's a lot of outstanding questions there. Same thing with regards to whether the Republican Party is an, it has become an anti-democratic party. I think there's reasons to suspect that that is the case. Again, these these election administration laws at the state level, I think, are very disturbing. But it remains to be seen if Republican state legislatures are going to follow through on, for example, overturning state election boards, um, you know, or um, replacing the presidential electors uh, that voters in their states choose with um, electors chosen by the state legislature. These are all things that are kind of floating in the ether as possibilities in 2024 uh but i'm just not certain yet that republican state legislatures or republican elected officials are going to be willing to take those very blatantly um anti-democratic steps uh they did not do so in 2020 and uh you know it's possible that they will walk right up to the line and then sort of scale back
1: I just have to disagree with that. I mean, you're right. I, we can't predict the future, right? And there could be what you just said, that dynamic occurring where they don't go that far. But I don't, and maybe you do, I do not see anything on the horizon right now in, that would, would essentially in, disincentivize them right, from doing that, right? I don't see a, a powerful figure in the Republican Party or a high-profile rising one, an elite who is standing up against these things, and it could be a kind of counter to the kind of messaging element of Trump that you're talking about. Um, I don't, I, and, and, and I also don't necessarily see, uh, 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 even though they didn't do it in 2020, as you're saying, um, that, you know, a lot of what's going on now is a reaction to what's perceived by a, a powerful faction as having been a failure, a disloyalty to Trump and a disloyalty to, you know, the, the sort of agenda, right, of, of that faction. And so they're trying to put in place things that will make 2020 not be a repeat, right, to make it so that it actually works to their favor. And so I don't know. I just don't see, I don't see anything stopping them anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and many of the elites continue to promote the lie that the 2020 election was stolen. And, and a lot of, of the Republican rack and, rack and file seem to believe that. At least that's what the polls suggest.
1: The, the, I, I can't stress that enough, that the polling day on this is really astounding in terms of you know, belief in this the, the, the election being stolen. Very, very large majorities of Republicans uh, everywhere um, believe that. And that is, it, you know, that kind of thing is really unprecedented, right, in American politics. On
2: that, I completely agree.
0: And, and of course, the willingness of Republicans to adopt these processes to... Perhaps overturn an election result might depend upon how close the election is too. Uh, if either party overwhelmingly—and that's unlikely—would uh, win, then then these kinds of machinations, their likelihood diminishes. Uh, you know, uh, if if say changing the electors from Georgia isn't going to affect the ultimate outcome, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Trump's prospects within the party. So, Adam, you think there's a chance that by 2023 we might see some challengers to Trump emerging in the Republican Party?
2: Yeah, I, I think we're already seeing signs of that. You know, Chris Christie, for example, clearly wants to run for president. He has, you know, been um, sounding these themes of it's important for the Republican Party to turn the page, to um, you know, enter a new era and so forth. I think the, the the thing the Republican Party has going for it um, in terms of kind of overcoming Trump or Trumpism is the fact that there are so many ambitious politicians, ambitious national figures within the Republican Party besides Trump. Um, and I think a lot of these folks are searching for a way um, to overcome Trump. And I, it just remains to be seen how successful they will be, you know. It's hard to know how long this kind of pro-Trump fervor in the Republican base will last. Uh, You you know, there's no—I cannot think of another figure in in modern American political histories that that has enjoyed such strong support from. you know, a very large percentage of either party's base across years, and you know, including years when that person is not actually in public office. It is certainly possible, I'm not saying it's likely, I don't know. It is possible that these kind of pro-Trump attitudes among Republican voters will die down after a while, that they will get distracted, they will move on, that some new figure um, will emerge that will captivate Republicans. So uh, the short answer is on on that particular question, I just don't know. I don't, you know, as a political scientist, I'm used to kind of making, uh, maybe not predictions, but interpretations based off of existing data. Uh, And we just don't have the empirical data on this sort of Trump question. Um, You know, we don't, there's no parallel figure um, in modern American history that we can look to, to say, how long is this Trump phenomenon going to last in order to make these kinds of inferences?
1: There's no parallel figure and that's part of the problem analytically, but I just, uh, you know, I, in order for another Republican figure to rise in the way that Adam is suggesting and kind of sort of take the place right of, 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 uh, of Trump, and there needs to be will to do so. And, there, I see absolutely no empirical sign that there's real will, even though there are ambitious politicians who are taking very small steps to try to distance themselves on the surface from Trump. And it would require sort of um, capturing kind of the narrative and the information stream that's going out there. And we haven't really talked about that stuff at all, this, this podcast, but um, I would suggest that part of the reason why such large majorities of Republicans believe the 2020 election was stolen and, and not just this, you know, the sort of stereotypical Trump based you know, white working class, quote unquote, but across the party is because they're caught in, an, in a sort of information flow that's been captured by basically elements friendly to Trump and the Trump faction to break that. Now, the empirical evidence that we're gathering through media studies and social media right now suggests is very, very hard. And it's certainly not going to happen without an opinion leader or a group of them on the republican side who are going to stand up and be
0: a real counter and i just don't see it right now okay enough with the republicans let's switch to the democrats what are the prospects for the democrats in the long term especially if they lose one or both houses in 2022 can they retain the presidency in 24 is there a comeback story for the democrats and what are the obstacles in its way and what are the divisions within the democratic party that that are, are going to have to be overcome
2: well I, with regard to 2024, I consider 2024 kind of a, a short-term uh, sort of issue. You know, I, I think of short short-term as in in the next five years. Long-term is, you know, after that. I think if Republicans take control of Congress, the narrative uh, in the national in national politics will change immediately. Um, At that point, you know, the media will begin to recognize that Biden and the Republicans are sharing power. And my expectation is that once that reality sets in among the American public, his approval ratings will start to rise. I'm not saying he's going to get reelected. But I actually think there's a better chance that he gets reelected if Republicans take control of Congress than if, if Democrats somehow manage to keep control of it. Uh, now the long term situation for Democrats I think is quite grim um, for some of the reasons that we 've already discussed in this podcast. Democrats really do face these profound structural disadvantages in American politics, especially the apportionment of the u s Senate, the electoral college, partisan gerrymandering, and related to all of these, the fact that their voters tend to be very concentrated in urban areas, um, which combined with the fact that we use single member districts in this country creates a geographic disadvantage uh, for them Um, you know because as we've seen over the past 20 25 years there have been numerous elections where democrats have won a majority of votes for the u.s house and yet republicans have uh won control of the house simply because of the way the lines are drawn and the fact that democrats are super concentrated in these urban districts while Republicans are more spread out across suburban and rural districts and so forth. So I think all of these structural factors um, are, are profound problems for Democrats. And the only real way I see for Democrats to overcome them is, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, to um, appeal more to you know, these you know so-called white working class voters in, in rural America um, who, you know, dominate in a lot of these small states, which have outsized influence in the Senate and the electoral college and so forth. But as we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, how to crack that code, how to make, uh, how to gain back some of those white working class rural voters is, is a, is a real conundrum for the Democrats.
1: I would just add, you know, on the short term meaning 2024 prospects. Um, I think that in, in as much as the, the devastation that's likely to happen in 2022 for the Democrats would be a big problem for the party and for its policy agenda, um, it could be, a, a frankly, a blessing in disguise for 2024. To add to what Adam said, I don't see really any evidence that the, the Republican Party right now, let's say it were to take both houses of Congress, could articulate a, a sort of an economic policy agenda that they could plausibly that could plausibly respond to the the concerns and the worries that the majority of Americans on pocketbook issues are are expressing right now. In other words, the reasons, many of the reasons why they're turning against Biden, right? Rising inflation, you know, worries about, um, you know, being able to make ends meet, right? Rising gas prices. And so... They're not going to be able to probably make headway on that, right, as in Congress, even kind of putting forth an agenda to people in those two years. And that's going to potentially help the Democrats, especially if they can take advantage of it, right, through political mobilization, through messaging in, in, in 2024.
0: Well, the Republican strategy seems to be to uh, emphasize cultural issues, uh, label Democrats as this the woke party, the... Uh, party in favor of critical race theory, all of that stuff, the pro-immigrant party. Uh, how can the Democrats counter that? Uh, I'm thinking particularly the the culture conflict around you know racial issues in particular. It seems that there are some voters who are uh, white voters who are very very concerned about uh, some kind of racial agenda being put down their throats. Many of the voters that. You say, Adam, the Democrats need to capture in the future. So how do they go about doing that without denying that there are problems of structural racism in America?
2: Listen, it's a super challenging problem because, you know, Democrats' efforts to change their messaging on these issues obviously runs into the, uh, the information flow problems that Matt was referring to, the fact that so many uh voters in rural america these days they get their information from right-wing media sources that are gonna spin uh democrats uh messages in you know in in ways that are counterproductive to democrats um i would emphasize however that you know these this issue with wokeness you know and and that's kind of a blanket term that you know is is i think you know not everybody it's, it's not often defined by the media and it's not entirely clear what it means although i think most people have a sense of what it means this issue of wokeness is not just an issue for democrats with white voters it's also an issue for democrats with latino voters as, as we've discussed there's a lot of evidence that trump's much larger than expected gains among latino voters in 2020 were a result of backlash surrounding the 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 protests in the wake of the george floyd murder and in particular in this kind of defund the police rhetoric that emerged among progressive quarters and that in some instances, Democratic politicians latched onto. Uh, And so I do think that a critical component of this for Democrats will be to kind of rein in um, some of these excesses on the left um, in regards to certainly police uh, issues, certainly immigration issues, right? Um, Open borders, you know, these, these kinds of memes that I oftentimes hear from the left, uh, they do get conflated with the Democratic Party. And of course, the right wing media picks up on this. But it's a reality uh, that I think Democrats will need to uh, contend with, for sure.
1: I just, (laughs) if I had any kind of coherent answer to this question, that I probably would be, you know, doing something else, right? This is a really, really difficult problem. I disagree, though, strongly with Adam about one thing, which is that I don't think that I don't think that, 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 you know, sort of walking away from the left is the main, even strategically, right, the main thing that the Democratic Party needs to do. I think that what it needs to do and, you know, if it can accomplish it is put forward a counter message, put forward a counter message that appeals to some of these voters on other grounds, especially on economic grounds. And so um, and pocketbook issues on class grounds. And so it's difficult to do. And especially, you know, think about the critical race theory thing. It's really astounding to me. Obviously, racial issues, racial tensions, racial conflict have been a, a, a chronic feature right, of American politics. And so in some sense, the things that we're seeing now are not new and are political articulations. But the idea that a very obscure academic theory could become the imagined basis of, of local school board fights at the level that it is. Would have been just unthinkable even 10 years ago, let, her, 20, let alone 20 years ago, and so that goes back to the information flow, and you know this, the the role of social media, um, you know the and so you know those things are gonna running away from the left. It, it, I guess what I mean to say is not going to counter that. Those images, that information, still going to be flowing around in people's phones, and so. What has to happen is a, an alternative set of messages have to get in there on other grounds that change the salience of what the discussion is.
0: Unfortunately, crafting that broader class-based message that's focused on sort of the concerns of families around the economy, their everyday lives, uh, the, the the basis of that does rest in these uh Legislative initiatives of the Biden administration, the build back Belt, back better plan is a potential platform for the approach you're suggesting Matt. yet that may not be available <laughs> because of the of the institutional gridlock, uh, the ability of the Democrats to uh, claim that they can offer anything that is broad based in a very concrete way to. Uh, all Americans uh, is perhaps gonna be stymied by these institutional factors.
2: Let me just say, Matt is obviously right. Critical race theory is this kind of obscure academic field. It's not being taught in Virginia public schools or New Jersey public schools or anywhere else. All right, but I think that the use of that term, right, is not actually by republican politicians is not actually in reference to critical race theory per se right it's in reference to this sense that i think a lot of voters across the country have uh not just white voters that this kind of um left wing approach this uh to uh racial issues this in particular um you know getting white people to accept their privilege to see themselves as oppressors getting people of color to see themselves as oppressed, that that approach is filtering down into the educational system. And I think there is a lot of evidence for that. um, And there's certainly evidence for that in Virginia. And I think Youngkin um, did tap into that in the Virginia governor's race. So um, I do think that uh, it is the case that uh, the left in this country, a part of its project is large scale cultural change, not just um, economic policy change. And that I think is what Republican politicians are tapping into. And so I think Democratic politicians do need to wrestle with this.
0: And the irony there is a lot of those efforts for trying to change people's racial attitudes doesn't really address fundamental problems of racial and systematic injustice. Right? Right. uh, And and and, uh, those efforts have been widely criticized from many on the left for that reason so I don't think white fragility discourse is very popular among many of the left-wing people I listen to anyway.
1: Yeah. And this stuff is real and problematic and, at, you know, think about the school boards and all that and in, in, in Virginia, but, you know, it would not nearly have the political effect and salience that it's having if we weren't in the kind of environment where, you know, um, where these sorts of it really critical race theory in air quotes is a symbol right, where where there, where where there is a difficulty getting alternative symbols in there. I, and, and particularly, you know, in some of these suburban districts um, where there are many voters who on some grounds are more naturally aligned with the Democratic Party, but because of issues like this, white voters are, you know, have, you know, this is hitting a nerve, right? and And they're not really seeing you know, I'm thinking about white middle class voters here, right, who aren't, aren't really seeing and, they, and they're not really getting access to other ways to to think about it, interpret these things.
0: OK, well, Matt and Adam, we've covered a lot of territory here. We could go on probably for another hour uh, on all these issues, uh, but I think we'll bring it to a close now. I want to thank both of you again for. Joining me to talk about American politics. I'm sure we'll be doing this again uh, to see where we stand, but thanks a lot. And thanks to Isabella Fernandez, our, our producer, uh, who's keeping things rolling here today. Uh, to Chris Judge of the Department of Marketing and Communications of Providence College, who supports our efforts. And to you, our listeners, please tell four friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.